0: I realized that my hands they wouldn't pinch they wouldn't move and they just they were just there but they weren't working. That was the initial part of ground zero for me as far as no functionality.
1: Welcome to How Do You Feel? A podcast with info and inspo to help you tune in to your fitness, nutrition and mindset. I'm your host, Casey Zavalletta, and together we'll explore how we can optimize our physical and mental health so that we radiate positivity and happiness from the inside out. Hi, everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of How Do You Feel? I'm so glad that you decided to join me this week. At the time this episode is coming out, I am in Europe. I think that I'll be in either Barcelona or Madrid at the point this episode is released. But for now, while I'm recording this intro, I am in the ever snowy Toronto. I'm going to keep this intro short and sweet, but my guest that I have on the podcast this week deserves a really special welcome because it's someone that means a lot to my husband Eric because he used to be one of his strength and conditioning coaches when he played at Indiana University. And it's someone whose story I really admire, and I was just so honored at how open he was with some of the struggles that he's gone through, and then also open about his career and how it's evolved over the years. On the podcast, I'm speaking with Tom Morris. Tom currently serves as the Assistant Athletic Director for Athletic Performance at Indiana University. He specifically works with the men's soccer team, but he's also served as the strength and conditioning coach for track and field, men's tennis, and diving. He's developed and implemented sports-specific strength, conditioning, flexibility, speed, and agility programs for all of Indiana's 24 men's and women's NCAA Division I programs. In 2012, Tom was out on a mountain bike ride. He doesn't even remember exactly what happened, but in the blink of an eye, Tom was off of his bike and seriously injured. It turned out that he had suffered a spinal cord injury that would leave him paralyzed from the waist down. Prior to the accident, Tom was obviously a full-time strength and conditioning coach. He was also a triathlete, an adventure racer, and a cyclist. For someone whose life revolves so heavily around athletics, I think this was such a freak accident. But Tom is amazing. The way that he approached his rehab and the way that he looks back on what he's been through now is nothing short of incredible, and I don't want to paraphrase it because you really do need to hear it from him. He's an incredible guy. I loved all of his insights on coaching, and I'm overall just really grateful that he was willing to come on and have this chat with me. So I hope that you guys enjoy this episode with Tom Morris. Hi, Tom. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. I'm really excited to get to talk to you. I appreciate
0: the opportunity. Great to see you.
1: Yeah, you too. Take me back to when you were younger. Did you know you wanted to be in strength and conditioning from an early age?
0: No, not at all. You know, I grew up in the world of sport, and um, I just loved the competition, the camaraderie, the overall idea of just getting out there and competing. And that's what I did. I I pretty much played every every sport since I was about five years old, and I loved it. It just was a thing that I, I was drawn to. It was something that I really craved. And then as I progressed up through, eventually, sport was over for me. And I found that at Penn State that I was no longer able to play football, and I just wanted to be around – I wanted to be around sport. And it was my almost natural avenue to, I guess, actually move right into. And it came from a professor of mine, ended up being a strength coach, and he told me all about the field of strength conditioning. He's like, you can't – you can actually – make a living doing this, and you could actually get in there and still be around the competition and just that overall atmosphere. And that was this big thing that I was drawn to. And it was kind of a natural fit for me.
1: That's awesome. So you went to Penn State, and then you stuck around in strength and conditioning there as well after you graduated, right?
0: Correct. Yes.
1: Cool. I would love to hear about your time at Penn State after you were working. I know that Penn State football has quite a culture of winning, of success. So I would love to hear about what you learned about coaching in your time there.
0: Yeah. So I basically, I came into Penn State as an undergrad. I wanted to play football. It just didn't work out for me there. And so what happened was I ended up finding myself in the weight room. The culture of what Penn State is from football to just all their sports is just such top-notch grade A high performers. And there's a great demand there, but there's a great organization as far as what winning is all about. And so I end up finding myself in this weight room training some of the most elite athletes on the planet and just loving the fact of, you know, what I got to do daily as far as, you know, not only working with them, but actually pushing them to the limits that they never thought were possible. I end up working with our, our soccer programs there and in, in, in basketballs and volleyballs. But then as grad school came around, I end up moving in and having getting a graduate assistantship uh, with our football program. And then everything just ignited because the football program there, like you just said, is there's a winning culture there. There's a there's an idea of perfectionism and, and the idea of just making sure you're taking care of all the little things. And so for me, getting in there and understanding these high demand, but high effort, it taught me a lot about coaching. But The number one thing it taught me was the attention to detail attention to detail is kind of that red thread that common theme throughout all great programs I think the attention to detail on doing the smallest of things really pays dividends later on and I'll give you an example of that our head guy uh, John Thomas he was my boss the director of strength and conditioning for a football team he was so particular on each rep each weight everything that went on that if we were putting on weight for athletes if it was supposed to be a, 55 and a half pounds, we had to figure out how to put that half a pound on there because it was about the fine little details that were going on. And the same was true with even how the rep was performed. If the rep was performed and didn't get a pause on rep number seven, but it did get a pause on rep number eight, well, rep number seven didn't count. So all of that stuff really paid into my eye as far as what really matters. And what really matters is those little, little things that end up adding up to an incredible amount. Because the bigger picture is the little kind of choices you have and the little things that end up adding up to your habits. Your habits end up creating your character. And for us, and especially at Penn State, everything that we did was about building up a strong character, making sure that the athlete was doing the exact same thing in the first minute of the game as they were you know, in the, in, in the 50th minute of the game. Because it was all those little things that were going to pay the dividends when we get tired and those habits end up start coming out. And our character is exposed at that point because true character gets exposed when a person gets tired. Penn State really gave me the idea of if you want to be great, if you want to really hit the biggest and the highest levels, you got to start at the basis and make sure that you're taking care of all the little things that will turn into big things.
1: Awesome. It really speaks to the mental side of the game and mm-hmm. how important it is in doing those things day in and day out and how that in the end leads to the results and the, the success that you're looking for.
0: Exactly. And that was the thing we're always preaching. You know, We talk about, there's a great book called Compound Effect. And the compound effect is based off of all your little choices that kind of run on this line. And in the micro part of everyone's life or Football career, soccer career, whatever it is, those little choices you make, they don't really spike or they don't really go down. You know, you hit a goal as a freshman, people are excited, but you're not really going first round into the into the MLS draft. If you end up missing class, you're not getting kicked out of school for it. But all those little choices that are going all through the line, freshman, sophomore year, all of a sudden now become your habits. You know, scoring a goal here, scoring a goal there. Well, all of a sudden, you've accumulated into stuff you compounded what you've done to get to that point, And you're at a point where you're looking at greatness. But the opposite is true that if you're skipping class, you're maybe going out and not making good choices on the weekend. All of that stuff is playing into this compound of a downward spiral. And we always look at that because it's a little choices you make in the beginning that pay dividends later on, but become who you really are.
1: That's such a good way to look at it. I love that. So somewhere along the way, you got interested in racing. I'm curious how and when that happened in your journey, and what made you fall in love with racing?
0: Oh, such a good question. And so I played football my entire life. Football, wrestling, I mean, that was what I did. And when I was at Penn State, I got up to you know roughly 230, maybe 240 pounds, and I just loved it. But the problem is, is being around sport is one thing, but having that outlet of competition and having that – outlet of train for something and then compete to see how you stack up against a competition was something I was missing. It was a transition time for me where I said, I don't really want to be this heavy anymore, but I wanted to get back into some level of competition. And so I start riding my mountain bike and then I decided to sign up for a race and I ended up doing all right. And I was riding Clydesdale division and everything at that point, which you had to be like 220 plus to even ride. And then it just started this kind of Spiral of just trying to get into not just good shape, but really get into the best shape I could possibly be in. Then I got exposed to the world of triathlon and road biking. And then the little races that were, you know, 20, 30 miles have now turned into 24 hour adventure races, 36 and 48. And before you know it, I'm going 72 hours through the woods. And it became this addiction to me because it was just something I went to bed with at night thinking about and waking up with because it was that level of competing again, but that level of growth and being able to really push myself to the utmost limits. And I really found this world of uh, kind of an identity with it, but also this direct feedback on, on growing and feeling the best that you could possibly be and kind of maximizing every minute that I, had, you know, I have here.
1: Cool. Can you tell me about the most extreme race that you ever did?
0: Yeah. So we're in, it's West Virginia. It's a 48-hour adventure race. It's a team of four, three guys, and my wife at the time, so, you know, not at the time, she's still my wife, but
1: three,
0: three <laughs> guys. clarification. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> kind of came out wrong. But, uh, three guys and my wife, and they basically drop you off in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of West Virginia. And then you have this topographical map, and you cover within 72 hours, four, 450 miles. And it's made up of hiking, running, kayaking, uh, whitewater rafting, rappelling, you name it, it's all thrown into this adventure race, as they deem it. And it's just a nonstop kind of escapade to kind of get through as many of these obstacles and get to the finish line as fast as possible, but still covering 450 miles of just nonstop crazy terrain. And the mixture of doing that race, understanding how much sleep you're supposed to get, how much food you're supposed to get in, it taught me a lot about myself.
1: Yeah, I bet. Wow, yeah. that sounds cool. How'd you guys yeah. do?
0: We did well. It, you know, it started off, it was crazy because we ended up finishing ninth and we looked at it and we're like,
1: ninth? Oh.
0: There was only 13 teams out of 150 teams that even finished it. So we looked at it as, yeah, oh, wow. we've only got ninth, but we did really well in the grand scheme of things. Mm-hmm. Perspective is all about life. I mean, that's, that's the best part of life.
1: So since you've been at Indiana University, you've focused primarily on soccer and basketball, but it sounds like you've actually dabbled and trained in many different sports. So I'm just curious how you train athletes differently for different sports, if you do take a different approach.
0: Oh, I most certainly do. And when I came to IU, you know, moved into this position, this position was a swimming and diving, track and field, uh, women's basketball, men's tennis, men's soccer men's golf, and help with football. So it was huge. I mean, we're talking 250 athletes that I had on my list, and all of them were so different the way way they needed to be trained. I needed to look at some common ground, some common ground that every athlete is going to need. My approach with that was just breaking it down. Everybody needs to get stronger, but what does a soccer athlete need compared to a track and field athlete? All of that stuff is going to come into play, What is the specific needs for each and every athlete in that respective sport? And what I've ended up doing was looking at more of your aerobic breakdown versus more of your anaerobic breakdown, looking at more of your strength sports compared to more of your power sport, and then kind of grouping them in there. And once I was able to do that, I was able to put these kind of little subcultures within all these different teams and all the different athletes. But even more than that is taking, for instance, a men's soccer team and looking at what a a striker is going to need compared to what a keeper, compared to what a a midfielder is all about. Because the bigger part is, is everybody needs to get stronger and more fit. But when you start breaking down and you start peeling the layers back, you find the little specific things that a forward is going to have a higher need for than a midfielder. Now, the fortunate thing when you're writing up all these programs, we have a huge amount of technology that really balances that out. We're able to Mm. analyze and pull this feedback off of each athlete really quickly and allows us to do a lot of programming very, very quickly. But the bigger gist of it is the grouping of what we're doing between aerobic sports compared to more of an anaerobic sports and then the strength and power thing. But once you lay that out, you can really make some really specific needs to where you need it to go.
1: What are some of the specific things that you train for soccer players?
0: So one of the biggest things is overall fitness. So let's use uh, soccer athletes. What we know is this. The overall fitness is a major component of it because even if you're a keeper, even though he's not moving, the elevation of heart rate that stays high throughout an entire game, especially when that ball is played on a certain side of the after midfield, it ends up being really, really crucial to making sure attention to detail is at the end of the game. So if they're not fit, their attention to detail goes out the window, and then we don't get the the best out of them. So we always have that level of fitness. But I'll tell you the specificness. Of soccer in particular. So we know that the body runs at almost 100% capacity or it moves at the best and most efficient way when it has balance. And what I mean by balance isn't the fact of standing on a BOSU ball or doing any of that stuff, but the balance between left and right, front to back, head to toe. And when we could figure out what that balance is, we could end up working on any deficiencies. And so for us, we do a ton of single leg exercises because Seeing the single leg exercises, how their strength is compared to how their power is from right to left will give us a better depiction on what that athlete's potential is actually going to be. So for our direct X's and O's, one of our foundational exercises, single leg squats. Single leg squats compared to the traditional double leg. I use double leg all the time before and now that I've transitioned away from it, I've found that our athlete's We've gained seconds on our 30-meter sprints. We've gained seconds on our 5'10 agility. And our injury levels are way less than they ever were before. So if I had any advice to give, especially when you're training any kind of athletes, look at making sure the balance of right, left, front, back, head, toe is 100% efficient because the most well-rounded athletes move the best, particularly if they have the least amount of injuries. But as soon as you throw an imbalance in there, everything goes to crap. It's a downward, downward spiral.
1: It's pretty cool that since you guys actually measure and track all these things, and you're recording your athlete's 30-meter sprint, and you're, at, you're looking at injury rates and things, it's pretty cool how you can change something in your training protocol and then see the results of that and see that it's actually effective.
0: Yeah. Well, that's the name of game for us. Everything that we do has to have a rhyme and reason. It has to have an objective, and there has to, it has to be measurable. We need to make sure that we're actually doing the things and taking the right steps to say, hey, this is working, because if not, we're kind of just mistaken activity for achievement because Mm -hmm. we're not really getting anything out of it.
1: IU Soccer is also quite a successful organization. It's been historically the most successful soccer program in the country. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, being there and then having come from Penn State, what similarities do you see between those two cultures? Is it mostly that attention to detail that you're talking about?
0: Yeah, I'll always refer back to that attention to detail. Uh, Todd Yagley is just a genius, one of the best coaches I've ever been around. And it's the attention to detail, but even more is consistency. You know, in 2012, we won a national championship. We go into 2013 with almost the same returning team. We lost a couple couple key factors, there's no doubt. But 2013, we had this incredible team. We're preseason number one. We have everything laid out. It's going to be a good run. Statistically speaking, back-to-back championships happen quite often. So us going into this year is, yeah, we're feeling really good. We go into this year, and we can't win a game. And so Coach made some changes as far as personnel. But his overall way of doing things, we have a winning culture, and we have a consistent way of doing and holding true to what we do as IU. We end up going in to the Big Ten Tournament, as the odd team out. We're gonna be the first team in 30 plus years that has not gone the postseason as an Indiana soccer team, which is incredibly devastating, unless you win the Big Ten tournament. And we go into that Big Ten tournament and make the run all the way through, and we end up winning the Big Ten tournament, getting the at-large bid and going in and then making it a run through the to the Elite Eight, which is a testament to the fact that even when thing is all over the place, even when stuff is is crazy. There's that consistency in knowing what Indiana soccer is about and making sure that we're continually doing the right things because it will pay off. It's just sometimes it takes a little bit for everything to kind of mold and come together. And that's the biggest similarity I see because at Penn State, we're the exact same way. There were down years, but no one abandoned ship. No one pointed fingers. No one did anything. We just knew what needed to be done, and we kept going. And before you know it, where we went to maybe – we didn't go to a bowl one year. The next year, we're going to you know, a New Year's Day bowl. And it's using the same system. It's just being patient and doing what needs to be done.
1: Cool. That makes total sense. Yeah. Speaking of 2012, 2012 was a very pivotal year in your life. I'm just curious if you could tell us about what happened that year um, that changed your life so much.
0: Yeah. So on May 17th of 2012, I went out for this uh, training ride. And it was going to be a mountain bike ride, do this little four lap course. This was going to be kind of a uh, a refining for a big race that week. And it was kind of a like the equivalent to a walkthrough. So I went out on this mountain bike ride. And on the fourth lap, I went around the corner and I hit something. And all of a sudden I found myself somersaulting through the air. And I ended up hitting my head off of the ground. And that impact broke my C6, C7 vertebrae, which is basically saying I broke my neck. I laid there for over three and a half hours until two riders came by. I had surgery on it later on and they fixed the spinal column, but the spinal cord was already damaged. And that damage left me paralyzed from the chest down with all four limbs severely impaired or not working at all. And 2012, I basically refer to as being zeroed out. I I had my entire life 32 years of my life where, you know, I was at a, a, a pinnacle of work. I loved every day. I, I, you know, I came to work not even wanting to get paid. I don't say that very loud, but, but it was just <laughs> such a great, rewarding place. Um, I was participating in sport where I wasn't just participating. I was, I was winning at that point. You know, and then I had a family. That was just incredible. And this injury wiped all of that out or made a lot of it unknown. 2012 I spent the entire year busting my butt in rehab to gain back all of that independence to be able to come back to work and then to ultimately get back into sport and to say it was it was one of my I feel there's been a lot of accomplishments in my life but to be able to go from such a high and then have it all taken away and to be able to fight back it's hugely rewarding and it's it's a part of What's made me a better person these days?
1: So C6 C7. That's pretty high. So you had lost functioning of your arms as well, which you've since regained full capacity of, right?
0: Well, relative full capacity. So uh-huh. initially after the accident, uh, you know, I laid in the woods and I had my phone in my back pocket, and when I reached behind, I was trying to grab the phone out of this like triathlon jersey or any of those bike jerseys, and when I was trying to pull it, I realized that my hands. They wouldn't pinch, they wouldn't move, and they, just, they were just there, but they weren't working. That was the initial part of ground zero for me as far as no functionality. And then as I got into the hospital and, and I'm in rehab, every single day I slowly worked on pinching one finger and then the next, and one after another, just continually trying to move down my hands. Now, fast forward this seven years later, it's been I don't have 100% capacity back as far as overall strength, But my overall hand motion is significantly better than that day. But the overall idea is it's an ongoing process. I'm continually getting stronger. The other day, it's so neat to see, but I just PR'd again on some of the weight room stuff. So it's never at 100% capacity. And I'm by no means back to who I was in 2012 before the accident. But it is significantly better. And I'm so fortunate to where my recovery has brought me it's just this point where I'll keep continuing to get work and get better and work on refining all the things that were taken away.
1: Mm -hmm. In those months following your injury, what was going through your head at that point? Were you afraid of what your life would look like moving forward?
0: You know, my biggest fear was, let me backtrack. So five days after the accident, I ended up finding myself in a rehab center. I was extreme. I was kind of, you know, cheerful. I was joyful. I had, relatively speaking, I was feeling really good. I mean, I hadn't laid around for five days in a long, long time. So, <laughs> yeah. So, I just, I just kind of chilled. But I was extremely optimistic about I was going to be this success story. And I make the joke that I was telling everybody, I'm going to be on stage with Oprah. By the end of, you know, this week, I'm going to be walking arm in arm with Oprah Winfrey. and And I was going to get this car. I had this whole thing planned out. But that evening, on the fifth day, I had some things happen to me in rehab where I realized that it wasn't about walking again or even moving my hands or, or doing any of these things that were hugely valuable and I wanted. It was the fact that I had all of my independence completely taken away from me. My wife was no longer – she was still my wife, but she ended up moving into more of a caregiving role. She ended up you know, having to do things that I would never want – have done as a husband. So a lot of this stuff at that point gave me the fear of I didn't want that. It didn't matter if I walked, if I ran or rode a bike or anything. But my biggest fear was I just wanted to gain back independence. And I was scared that I wasn't going to be able to do it. Everything in my life, I've always been taught that the glass isn't half empty, the glass isn't half full. The glass is 100% full, half air, half water, It's all matter and it's filling that glass up. So you got to see that and see adversity as an opportunity. And for me, that was the only thing I could wrap my brain around and my thoughts around was if you quit, it's over and you've hit this rock bottom and that's where you're going to stay. And that's, and, and that's not what I wanted. But if I could see adversity as this opportunity, well then who knows what'll happen. Even in the darkest times, even in the rock bottom times, I was fearful and I was scared. But I just kept hanging my hat on the fact of, now, just see it as an opportunity, grow from this, get better from this, do whatever you can to somehow bring back your life and however you got to do it, just get there. And so that was the thing that kept fueling me. And then I worked little goals into that system. I tell all the athletes, I know I I told Eric, but it's all about little goals. If you could create little goals to continue to keep building up and continue to keep gaining momentum with, well then who knows where you're going to end up. But if you think of the big goal and I thought of independence and I just thought about getting there, I didn't have a blueprint to how, how to build up into that. So those days of just sitting there and, and questioning, will I become independent again? Well, I gain back my life. I'd sit there with the toothpaste, you know, just work on squeezing the handle, squeezing the tube and putting it onto the toothbrush because I knew that if I could start doing that, if I could build up the strength in my fingers, well, that's a step and that's a goal. And if I can achieve that goal, I know I'm going to be excited about it. And I know that's going to continue to keep building. And that's how I approach this whole you know, post-injury deal is work on the little things, but stay positive, stay optimistic, and just continue to have hope that, that it'll come.
1: The small wins propelling you forward. They're key. Take me into your thought process behind returning to work. Obviously, your job is Somewhat of an active one. Did you ever question if you would go back to doing what you do?
0: No, but I have extremely scared. You know, coming back to work, we have this 25,000 square foot weight room. We've got some of the greatest athletes on the planet. It's, It's an extremely athletic based job. You know, I'm going to teach people how to run, and here I am sitting in a wheelchair, you know, not exactly ideal. Just thought, you know what, I could use technology. I could use these seniors to teach the younger people. I could do it. But I was scared to death. And the biggest fears that I had going into it was I was just so scared of how they were going to judge me or how they were going to see me or how they were going to look at me because I just didn't want to feel different. I wanted to feel like I fit in. I was the coach. I wasn't here, the guy in the wheelchair. I was the strength coach. I I deserved to be there. I wanted to be there. And, And that was the biggest thing that I realized was in my head. And it was just this thing that was occupying so many thoughts that it did make me feel like, is this the right move? Am I coming back or should I do something else? I'll give you a story because I come back, I think it was about a year, it was was almost directly a year after the accident. I come into the weight room and the women's basketball team is there and I quickly realized that I forgot something in my car. I ended up going out to my car and on my way out to my car, my leg kind of fell forward off of my wheelchair. Mm Well, I reached down and I grabbed my leg. And in the process of grabbing my leg, I guess I leaned too much weight forward and hit a curb. And all of a sudden, launched myself straight out of the chair, right onto the ground. I'm laying there flat on the ground, wheelchairs off to the side. And this is right in the middle of this huge football stadium. Well, what makes it worse is the entire baseball team is now walking by. This Whole day, all I feared was I didn't want to be seen different. And now I'm the guy not only in a wheelchair, I'm not even in a wheelchair and I'm laying on the ground. So two guys yell over, Hey, can we help you? And I said yeah. And they come walking over and they're talking about the night before. And they ask me if they need what I need. And I asked them just to pick me up, putting me in the chair. They throw me in the chair, they ask if they need any more help. Um, I say no, and they end up going back and 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 go downstairs. So I get to my car, grab the stuff, and then on my way back down, all I'm thinking is is. Uh, I'm going to have to go down there. I'm going have to have the coach come up. I know he's going to be worried. These athletes are going to have stories about picking up the guy in the wheelchair. And I ended up coming into the room and no one said anything. Everybody just said, Welcome back. And no one brought it up. And I trained our teams. I spent the entire day in there. We had great lifts. But I waited and I waited and I waited. And then coach came over. Uh, we were talking, but never brought it up. It was never brought up until about a month and a half later when i brought it up and i told the story and the coaches hey we didn't know that happened we had no idea no one spoke anything of anything that actually happened to me that day why that's so significant is all of the stuff in my head was in my head and no one else was even thinking it and i think that's just so true to how many things that we are we go through in life we're just so worried and so scared of all this you know being judged from the outside when the truth is people just don't even care and so I use that as fuel to come back and be who I was, you know, be who this person that I maybe was scared to be before I've given myself permission to say, yeah, I, I don't care if you don't agree with me on it, but just know that everything that I'm saying and doing is coming from a genuine, loving, caring place. And, and it's really, really helped me come back and transition back into this work environment that is hugely a, a movement based Uh, athletic environment
1: it is so true like you just telling that story even kind of gave me goosebumps because we just build things up so much in our head no matter what it is right it could be anything that we're afraid of that we're afraid of judgment we build things up so much and we think that everyone else is looking at us and judging us and paying attention to these things and in reality they're just not (laughs) you know it's something that we're doing to ourselves so i think that that's an awesome takeaway Yeah. I've uh, talked to my husband, Eric, who you got to train while he was a soccer player at IU. um, And he trained with you before the accident. And then I've also spoken with Griffin Dorsey, who I know that you trained with, but he's now here in Toronto. And it's interesting because your reputation as a trainer, hearing from both of them, is the exact same. That Basically, that reputation is that you love a good hard work ethic, that you don't put up with bullshit in the weight room, you know, you're really hardcore in the weight room, but then outside of it, you really care about the athletes as people and you wanna help support them as people. Yeah. I'm curious in your opinion, how you think you've been able to maintain that same positivity and energy and drive for your job both before and after the accident?
0: Well, oh, Yeah, y- you know, I. I just really value life. Like it's however I'm able to be if it's in a wheelchair or if it's upright or if it's whatever, I just value the the seconds and minutes I have each and every day and however I'm going to be able to live them. And so before the accident, I tried to take advantage of every second or minute of the day, either if it was on a bike or if it was building relationships or whatever it may be. I just really valued all of that. And I think that whole held true. Of after the accident, I could spend times wondering what if I could spend times trying to figure out, you know, how to, I don't know, you know get out of this chair right now, uh, maybe putting my energy in other places. But the truth is, I just, I really value relationships. I truly value and care about our athletes and not just in the way of getting them stronger, but understanding who they are as people and understanding what makes them click to just how to help them out and make them succeed. And, you know, Jerry Yegley, Papa Coach Yeagley, most legendary coach of all time, he always said it. He said, if, a, if an athlete comes to your door, drop everything and sit down and just let them talk and, and, and be there for them. I've taken that advice ever since I've been here, and it just has paid dividends for me because, I, I, I mean, I've gotten people stronger. I've gotten them fitter and faster and everything. But understanding who they are getting invited to weddings and being part of their lives post-collegiate experience or pro, uh, it's just the thing that drives me. And that's driven me since I got into uh, the world of strength and conditioning. Um, And it's still the thing that drives me now because I I value what people have to offer one another and and how to make each other better.
1: That's awesome. I I feel like I can relate to that so much. I think early on as a trainer, I was more focused on the wins in the gym and getting people stronger getting people fitter and getting them the results. But as I've had more time with clients, I've started to realize that the thing that really matters is getting to understand them and building those relationships and being a coach in a larger sense for them. Um, And those are the things that in the end, both the client and I take away so much more from.
0: It's so true. And and, and I speak, we have 14 uh, full-time staff members here. And that is the thing that I preach more than anything because we're all – our job is to get people stronger. Our job is to get people in better shape. And and we have a high-demanding job with that, so we never want to undermine that. But the bigger value you're going to get, the bigger growth for yourself and those athletes is to understand who they are because that's what this is all about. I mean, relationships, You know, being that mentor, leader, that person that's going to give direction – and help that maturity, you know, help that maturation process to become something better than you are. I love the human connection, and I think sometimes that's lost, and especially if you're in an environment that's just X's and O's driven and just a very black and white deal. I think it's lost, and I think that sometimes with our field from strength conditioning to personal training, it's a a piece that's lost. It's really tough because that could be the really big deal that changes someone's life.
1: What do you strive to teach the athletes that you work with?
0: Work ethic is is a big deal. I I just think you'll get having them come in there and understand what it is to get better each and every day, to have value and being present right now. You've got today. How do you make today better than yesterday? Mm -hmm. And if you're granted tomorrow and you could get that, how are you going to make that day better? But I believe it starts with a work ethic and an idea of being present for the now. When I'm talking to our athletes and I'm talking to them as far as, different workouts and stuff it's very black and white on a on a work card of what they need to get better but the other part that's so much harder is what their mindset is going into this the ability to say not just i'm going to get better here but to actually push through the wall and physically have confidence in themselves that they're going to be able to take this and continue to keep striving to a big picture of who they are and what it's all about because that stuff right there is that little it factor that they all need if you're going into the world of business or whatever, it's just that confidence in themselves and that deliberate practice to say, this is what I need to do today to get better, but then I'm gonna have the confidence to run through that wall because I'm gonna be able to.
1: It's such a good point that those things and learning that work ethic and those skills translate to everything in life. Mm -hmm. And no matter what it is that you need to get better at or that you're striving for, that applies. No doubt. What are the biggest lessons that you've learned in the last seven years?
0: You know, I'll go back to it, to be present, uh, to understand the value of what you have right now. That's kind of a, a line that I firmly believe is, you know, make today better than yesterday. And if you got tomorrow, make that better than today. Everything I did up until May 17th of 2012, I knew about being present. I understood it. I practiced it. After that accident, I just realized that everything can be stripped away from you and everything can be taken away. And even though you build back up, you never know what's around the corner. We're just not granted a body, a body that is literally capable of anything. I mean, you have no boundaries in most bodies. I mean, you're able to go out and do and be who you wanna be. And so to be present and take advantage of that is something that I have learned to really embrace and really make a daily practice for me because if tomorrow I wake up and I'm you know, no longer to even move in a wheelchair, I hope that I took enough advantage of today to be able to at least get some different things going on in the future.
1: I saw that you've gotten into paracycling since Mm -hmm. your accident. Can you tell us about the sport and maybe just a little bit about para athletics in general?
0: Yeah. So it's a hugely competitive sport, which is so much fun because getting back into competition is what I crave. I love being, you know, fun and having a great time and blah, blah, blah. But I love to be able to train and then compete against somebody because I, I love to know that I'm mentally stronger. It's just, it's a thing that drives me, and mm-hmm. I love that. I got back into paracycling, para hand cycling, and I did some local stuff, and local stuff is good. But when you get to the national level, I'll be darned if that's not one of the most competitive, cutthroat, challenging sports I've ever been part of. And that right there has given me, you know, kind of an identity back, but this. This whole new freedom to be able to express myself and to put myself back into some of those similar situations as what it was like on a bike before. And so for me, being able to get back into this crazy, competitive, tough world has not only got me back training hard, but to actually been able to go out and travel and and compete in some of these places just to find out where I am physically and mentally. And it's been one thing that I cannot emphasize enough how rewarding it's been.
1: That's so cool. I know you've talked in the past a little bit about you're an an endurance athlete, but you've emphasized the importance of maintaining strength training amidst the larger scope of your training. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what your personal training program looks like right now?
0: Yes. My whole system is basically work on endurance, but the idea of strength training is always foundational to making sure endurance is at a high level. So if you have a weak body, well, then your fitness is ultimately going to suffer because if you don't have that strength throughout the joints and just making sure that everything is structurally sound, you can never fine tune that Ferrari engine because something will ultimately break down. And so for me, it's always the strength training aspect to everything that I'm doing now is to keep the engine inside from heart, lungs, everything else, still processing and moving at a really high rate. My situation is different because the hips and knees are made to have that pounding and running and everything else. But the shoulders, they're just not made for that. And they they do wear and tear a lot faster than what the hips would. Everything that I'm doing daily is with the mindset of making sure I could promote more longevity throughout shoulders, back, through my neck, everything else, so that I could continue to keep getting out there and practicing and working just as hard in the endurance world. I encourage everybody, even in our cross-country athletes, to make sure that they're still out strength training because if that breaks down, tendonitis flares up, all those little things flare up, then you can't go out and practice. And then you're technically not even the athlete that you really want to be. And it could have been prevented just by doing some basic range of motion strength training exercises.
1: Yeah, that's such a good point. Strength training is the thing that keeps your joints healthy, so then you can use them in these endurance sports where you're using them over and over and over again in these repetitions.
0: Exactly. And there's the other part of that is endurance sports like running or biking, this is repetitive over over and over action that's happening. You cause a tremendous amount of wear and tear, a tremendous amount of breakdown because the body gets in those patterns and then all of a sudden there's nothing to counter that pattern. So strength training is basically going opposite of that. So if you're a quad dominant sprinter, you'll work in the hamstrings, taking that lunge pattern into a reverse lunge pattern to get away from what is typically going on in the sport itself. And if you think of injury, I mean, injury occurs, you know, from Achilles to hamstrings to even shoulder injuries. 90% of the time, it's because that shoulder is always rotating forward and there's a lack of strength there. Truth is, we should be doing the complete opposite of that to get us out of those
1: patterns. Awesome. I love that. Yeah, such a good point. I had Eric on this podcast a couple of months back kind of early on in the show, but he was talking a lot about how much his professionalism has evolved since he's been in the MLS and since he's been a pro. So I'm just curious because you knew him before he was a pro when he was in college. I'm curious if you have any funny stories about him from when he was training with you.
0: So I do. And you know Eric has always been a pretty high level professional. I mean, he, with all things being said, we get 18 year olds in here ugh, and sometimes they're off the wall. They drive me crazy. And maybe Eric doesn't fall far from that, but I will tell you this. So there's this summer where we were basically, we're working out and we had the entire team ready to lift. They were supposed to meet me at eight o'clock in the morning. Out of 20 guys, we only had about six guys show up. And this was the point when they had a great senior leadership. It was Harrison, Pats, Kayla, Kostanski, all these guys, and they said to me, "Well, this is bull. You know, let's go get them." So I hopped on my bike, and then they are going in a run. So what we did was systematically go to all the different houses where all of the soccer athletes lived, and we start pulling them out of bed. I got to Tommy Meyer's house, and we went in, and then I opened up the door. And there, Eric sat. Now, Eric wasn't even on campus. He, he just got on campus. He was a freshman at that time. And I came in, and he was with about four others, and they were all staying with Tommy. And I came in there, kind of like a raving banshee, yelling at them to get up. And, Tommy, we had to get going, all this. But I'll be darned if Eric didn't jump up. And the only pair of shoes he had were these big boots. I mean, these big boots <laughs> that he used to tie. We jump out. We started running. So Eric and a bunch of three or four other of the freshmen and Tommy Meyer jumped into about a six-minute pace for the next three miles, running full speed all through campus, doing this big entire 5K loop at like a six-minute pace. Yeah, he gets back to the stadium, and he completely collapses but never quits the whole entire time, and he's in boots. And his
1: boots, that's the best part. That's hilarious.
0: Oh yeah. It was incredible. But I'll be darned from that point, everybody told me, you know, he was a big time recruit coming in. And so I was aware of it. But when he was out there trying to run, you know, he's kind of running, but he looks so bad. And I'm like, there is no way this guy is a great athlete, but I gotta put it on him. It was the fact he jumped into a really fast pace and he ran in boots because the next day when he woke up and he did train, totally impressed. And I mean, never since then he's been literally one of my favorite guys that has come through because he's been, the, he's been one of those guys that has done everything possible to make himself better. And uh, it speaks volumes to the fact of he did everything then so that now he's having that career that he's having right now, which is, you know, off the charts. And I wish him nothing but the best. It's no surprise to me because he always, no matter what was said, no matter what was done, he put in the effort, he put in the work. Now here he is. I don't know how many years he's in the, how many years is he in the MLS?
1: This is like seven or eight, I think. Unbelievable.
0: I mean, that yeah. is a career right there. I love that. So it's 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 incredible stuff what he's been able to do and what the program is too, because him coming here, he knew that that's the demand of what IU, being an IU soccer player is about. He lived up to that demand and he's had some bumps in the road, but he's always come back and he just keeps fighting and fighting and he's a tough dude, I'll tell you that. So So that's my Eric story for you because it was, Pretty darn awesome because so many of them would have bailed out at that time.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's hilarious. I'm, I'm impressed that he stuck with it. That's good. I've never heard that one.
0: Oh, yeah, it's good.
1: Cool. Uh, well, I just have one final question for you. This is a question that I ask everybody that I get on the podcast. I'm curious what makes you excited to get out of bed in the morning?
0: It always comes back to growth. What can I do today to make me just a little bit better than yesterday? is something that every single day I come out of bed with and I journal and I make sure I lay out. I love to grow and just get better. It's an addiction for me that I just love. The time here is so limited. I mean, I've been injured for seven years. They're pretty challenging years. I mean, this life is, is, it was a lot easier before. And the fact is I feel like that was yesterday that I just got injured. I hope that I make it to 85 because at 85, I know I'm going to look back and go, that went by really fast. So every time that I get out of bed, I just want to get better or make people better. However it comes across, I'm addicted to the growing and leaving an impact on this
1: world. Very cool. Thank you so much, Tom. This has been awesome hearing from you and learning from you. If people are interested in maybe connecting with you, learning more about you or even the IU athletics program, where should they go to do that?
0: So all my social media is TomMorrisPerformance.com and then website is TomMorrisPerformance.com as well. Um, And then also Indiana Strength is the other part, IndianaStrength.com lays out all the stuff that we're doing as a staff, uh, as far as some of the learning videos, as far as teaching articles. We've taken what 15 strength coaches do daily and we try to programming into how to make others see and and be able to use it as a knowledge-based platform for others to get better.
1: That sounds great. And I'll link all of that up in the show notes as well. So people can get in touch. Very cool. Awesome. Thanks so much, Tom.
0: Thank you. Have a great day.
1: Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode of How Do You Feel? Remember, a new episode comes out every Monday morning. So make sure you subscribe on either Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher or CastBox so that you don't miss an episode. If you have someone in your life that you think would benefit from all the awesome things that we talk about on How Do You Feel and the amazing guests that we have on each week, please share the show with them. All right, guys, I think that's all I have for you. I hope that everyone has an amazing week and make sure you get out there and do something that makes you feel good today.